Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Our mission at Unmistakable Creative is to bring you conversations with insanely interesting people. But that's not all. It's also to help you become one of them. I've never met a person that doesn't have creative ideas, but I've met a lot of people who haven't figured out how to bring them to life. And even if you have very little time, no experience, and no idea where to start with very few of the right skills and systems, you can create and sustain real progress, and I can teach you how to do that. That's one of the reasons we launched Unmistakable Prime, our monthly subscription, and for the first time, we're offering a free two-week trial. Prime is designed to help creatives like you bring their best ideas to life. It includes all of our courses, live office hours twice a month, a book club, webinars, and an amazing community of creatives. Our members have started podcasts, landed new clients, increased their revenue, developed new skills. Every week we hear new awesome updates from people, and there's no reason that you couldn't be next. For a limited time, you can actually try Prime for free for two weeks. Prices go up on March 18th, so don't wait. Go to prime.unmistakablecreative.com and join us today. Adi, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me, Srini. Yeah, it is my pleasure. So I found out about your work because you wrote in, you told me about your new book, Life Profitability, The New Measure of Entrepreneurial Success, all of which we will get into. But before we do that, I want to start by asking what I think is a very relevant question, um, given just a little bit uh, about what I've learned from you, and that is um, from reading your book. And that is, where in the world did you grow up and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? Yeah, wow, that's um, that's a great question. So the, the simpler, well, the simplest part of that answer is that I grew up in Cape Town, South Africa, where I still live. So I'm 36 years old, which means for the last 36 years of my life, I've lived in, in Cape Town. Uh, we now live slightly outside of Cape Town city center, at least into the Winelands, about an hour away of you know Cape Town. And I think, you know, if I think back to just my journey, probably not even my journey as an entrepreneur, but mostly as an adult, like post school. I think the two things that kind of stand out there, Shuni, is the first part, which is because we've always been so far removed from any tech hub, right? So I, I built technology software businesses, and 
I've been physically so far away from those tech hubs. Back in the day, like, you know, like back in the days, 15 years ago, right? When information wasn't as accessible, it kind of meant having to figure things out in our own way, right? And in my own way. And never necessarily getting stuck into, I would say, that echo chamber. The, you know, the echo chamber, I think, one would have otherwise found had I kind of grown up in the Bay Area, right? Or in New York. So I think that's the first part is that my perspective is very different, um, or at least was very, very different. Maybe it's kind of conformed to the mean in recent years slightly as I've exposed myself to you know, kind of other cultures and to those kind of your know, tech hubs or, you know, main mainstream cities at least. But I think that's the one part thereof. The other part is interesting, which is throughout kind of you know, building the two successful businesses that I've built and sold in the past, it made sense for me not to live in South Africa from a commercial standpoint. Both businesses had customers, 60, 70% of the customers was North American. And it always, or at, the, at times at least, meant working weird hours, having to work in the evening for me to catch up with someone or have an important call with someone on the West Coast, for example. And my wife and I have just always made that decision to say, you know what, Cape Town is our home. And that's such a great, I, I think even saying that now like brings a smile to my face. Like that's such a great feeling and being able to say, you know what, regardless of these other things that would have made sense, like we've truly made a decision unique to ourselves, like personal to ourselves and very specific about the kind of the, the benefits and the value we get in our actual lives versus just this one small part, which, which would have been, hey, Eddie has a better work day and this is maybe better for, for his business if we move abroad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there, there are several questions come to this. You know, it's, it's funny. Um, I remember uh, Chris Saka when he was on Tim Ferriss's podcast talking about the fact that he decided to move to Truckee three hours away from the Bay Area when he started Lowercase Capital, which, you know, makes <clears throat> on the surface no sense at all to think, why am I not in the center of the action? <laughs> but to your point, I think it, it pulled him out of the echo chamber. And I think I distinctly remember him saying he knew that if somebody was willing to drive three hours to come and meet him, that was somebody who was very serious about what they were doing. So he filtered out a lot of riffraff as a result. And I mean, I think <laughs> the results kind of speak for themselves when you look at, you know, what Chris Saka has done. Um, but what I wonder about that is if people are in echo chambers and in a lot of ways, many of us are, um, you know, people who listen to podcasts like mine, who participate in communities that are similar, in a lot of ways are in, are in echo chambers, whether it's geographically or in terms of the content they consume. How do they pull themselves out of echo chambers, um, particularly if they're in a place like Silicon Valley, where there is sort of a, a way that things are supposed to be done, conformity kind of tends to be what happens? Yeah, I think it's a, just a purposeful and a very active, proactive decision to diversify perspectives. So very concrete example for me, Shrini, is that, you know, and I've always been an avid reader, at least. Um, and then, but specifically in the kind of you know, the, the last five, six years of my life, which really kind of, you know, you know, also shaped my, a lot of my kind of thinking about how I think about life and business. And, you know, many of those ideas make it into my book. But the thing that ultimately really influenced that is I really just read like a variety of things, right? So I, I got into kind of philosophy via the Stoics, right? And um, the Transcendentalists, and then kind of, you know, all the way to kind of, you know, Buddhism and some Eastern practices and Japanese culture to starting to read science fiction. And I guess my point in that is just very simply, like if if you don't want to be an echo, in, in an echo chamber, just start adding 
diverse things in your life, like many of those things won't be valuable. They might not impact you or influence you as much as you would hope or think, but that doesn't really matter. Like, I think diversity is like just being, um, you know, diversity of thought here, right? That's what I mean, is just being aware of all these other perspectives. And then I think the more you do that, the more you start kind of illuminating potential kind of options or new ideas, new opinions, new philosophies, new ideals, whatever it is, that you yeah. could kind of you know, make, make your own and add to that conversation in your echo cha- chamber. And that probably creates a new echo chamber again, right? Because we, <laughs> we, we always kind of self-select, right? Like, you, like, it doesn't matter in which part of your journey you're at. Like, something that's of interest to you now. I, I mean, I remember when I got deep into Buddhism, for example, I suddenly found loads of people that were super interested um, you know, in the topic, like, and were you know, some were knowledgeable, but they were engaging, right? So we self-select again. But I think rotating around those different kind of echo chambers is, I, I think, what is important because that way at least we make the echo. If at least, like, the very least we do, right, is we make the echo chamber we were in slightly, slightly bigger. Yeah, I mean, it's part of the reason we have everybody from bank robbers to drug dealers to porn stars to people like you as our guests on the podcast because every one of them has something to teach us. Yeah, well, and exactly right. And I think that's um, what I love about that and the way you say that um, and like linking it to the Buddhism, right, which is, um, you know, when the student is ready, the master appears and like keeping that beginner's mind about not judging beforehand what you can learn from another person just because they are kind of, they have a label which doesn't necessarily infuse you in you know whatever way. Um, but going into the conversation without that kind of prejudice probably means you can you can discover something there something that's of value something that's unique because every single individual is unique right and has their own unique blend of magic that they can add to a conversation or an experience if you if you create the space and the opportunity to actually mm. explore that yeah so one follow-up question to this and then and then i want to talk a bit more about you know growing up in south africa uh one thing that you know I've noticed, and, and this is something that I have uh, you know been very diligent about keeping in check, is um, this temptation that people have to rest on their laurels, particularly in a position like yours, when somebody who doesn't know as much or is not as successful by any metric, you know, that, that typically is used to measure success of a business comes along. It's really easy to dismiss, you know, what they have to offer um, simply because you're by that metric more successful. So I, I guess the question then is. is how, when you've achieved what you have, do you keep yourself from resting on your laurels? Oh, um, I think you, well, I mean, I can speak for myself, right? And I think, um, you know, part of, because what I would say is you put yourself out there again. Um, the way I see things, right? And I'm onto my at least third kind of big attempt in building a software business. And the two previous exits have meant that financially, I don't have to do this. But the thing that pulls me forward is the fact that I'm very, very aware of my kind of my values and who I am as a person. And what that means literally here is I love to create. I love building teams and I'm ambitious, right? Um, which plays into the fact that I, I want to learn new things and I, um, I want to challenge. But ultimately, what if I had to distill that down is every single experience in my, my life has gotten to me to a point whether it's success or failure, where I felt that I now have new knowledge, new experience, new skills, new friends, new resources. And I now want to do something else with this. And I want to do it in a way that is slightly evolved, slightly better than what it was before. So that's at least the kind of the angle that I take into that. Um, 
that notion of better, that, that notion of seeing progress. And that progress doesn't just relate to the things I do or the things that I inherently kind of, you know, touch or interact with. I, I think there's a broader, almost philosophical feeling to that, you know, to me, where I think about, you know, as a society, as a, as a human race, we're also moving forward. And I want to ensure that I am at least directionally, um, you know, part of that movement forward, right? Um, doesn't really, like, I'm not necessarily going to influence, you know, world politics or global warming or any of these bigger initiatives that we need to, to figure out. But I want to be part of that, this, this motion that is generally, you know, generally says progress on the label, um, at least. But that's the thing. And as I said, then I, then it's mostly for me, it's a daily and a weekly practice of making sure that I show up and I do, do the reps. Yeah. So um, I want to talk a bit more about growing up in South Africa because I've had uh, several guests here who grew up in uh, South Africa and none of them were white. And that's why I wanted to ask you about this. Did you grow up during the time of apartheid or did apartheid end during the time that you were growing up? Like, forgive my lack of um, the timeline knowledge on history. Uh, yeah. But I was wondering. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess, well, what is important, um, or at least in terms of you know, time stamping that, um, I was nine years old when we had our first democratic election in the country, which meant that, um, you know, for, I think for those first nine years, I was obviously woefully too young and then woefully ignorant about what was actually going on um, in, in our country. I think everything that I now understand about apartheid, um, I sub probably learned kind of after that point, i.e., you know, when we were already a democratic country um, and kind of having to battle all the consequences of apartheid for, for all of those years. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So as a, a white South African, what did your parents teach you about race relations growing up? I mean, I honestly, probably very little. Um, and when I say very little, um, they, I think they taught, mostly taught me that all people are equal, right? Even though they might not have necessarily supported, you know, governments or movements or policies that did that. But I think in principle, that's what they taught me. I think there was a notion I also, uh, um, <laughs> and, I, and I laugh as I was going to say this, uh, I was going to say I grew up in a, in, a, in a household where the Christian faith was the one that I was brought up in. Um, my views have changed since. And the reason I laughed there was purely because the South African government aligned very, very co- you know, closely with the Dutch Reformed Christians in our country to essentially kind of you know, uh, preach about apartheid um, you know, in church, which is absolutely ludicrous in my mind. But that aside, I think, as I said, I, I, I want to believe um, that my parents tried to teach me what is right and wrong. And I think they mostly did. In hindsight, as a 36-year-old white male in my country, I wish that at that stage, even at that young stage, they did more to explain to me literally what, what, what compounded privilege actually looks like. Because I was already living that to a very large extent as a as a youngster, um, and I, I would have liked to have known that sooner and understand that sooner. Again, like this is something that I only late, you know, much you know, understood to some extent, um, you know, much later, much later in my life. Yeah, well, I, I love that concept of compounded privilege because I think it's something that almost all of us overlook. Um, you know, in the when we're whether it's when we're creating content, whether it's when we're writing books, we often don't consider the context of the people who are either reading this stuff or consuming it because theirs is so much different than ours. Um, so, you know, I wonder, uh, you know, you shared what your parents taught you about this. How did that experience of growing up, you know, seeing sort of post-apartheid uh, impact, you know, the relationships you had, the friendships you had, and you know, what have been the long-term consequences of this? And then when you see something like what has happened, you know, to us here in the United States over the last maybe three, four years with sort of, you know, the amount of division we've seen, the, you know, 
just race relation tensions we've seen, you know, as a person who has grown up in a country where there's apartheid, what do you make of that? Yeah. And in, in a hundred percent, you know, honesty and transparency as well, Yashwini is, um, you know, I, I, I am still uncomfortable, um, having these discussions, right. Which I think is, is a big part of, of the problem generally. Right. Um, I think, I think the hardest, you know, what the the hardest part for me, at least, is that to some extent, um, your people, the biggest legacy of apartheid, I think, is the fact that most people still tend to self-select in terms of friendships, or, and much of it, I think, is part of going through school, right? I I went through a school that was. Uh, both primary school, high school, and ultimately even university, right, which still suffered from a massive gap between the kind of the, the previously advantaged people, i.e. predominantly white people, and those disadvantaged people, i.e. predominantly kind of, you know, black people, colored people, etc. And it, I think it means that, and if I look at most of my friends in my life right now, it's either friends and friendships that I've maintained from that era in my life or friends that I've made since. And the friends that I've made since is, you know, is definitely influenced by the social circles that I move in, which is definitely kind of influenced by, um, you know, kind of the, the, literally the financial capital available. Right. So I think that's the hardest part is I was never, and I have never been in organic spaces where I could have individually bridged the divide and say, Hey, I've got, I've got so many different friends from different races, different culture, different ethnicities. Um, and if I actually compare that to the friends that I have in the rest of the world, the friends I have online in air quotes, right. Um, it's a much more diverse group compared to kind of the, the, you know, the, what that makeup is for friends that I have in real life. And I think at least for me, that's that's been the hardest part um at least acknowledging that 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 gap is there and as i said not not necessarily knowing how i could bridge that yeah i i appreciate your candor about that um so just the the, the follow-up to that of course is you know as a person who has been in a country where apartheid was present until you know not that long ago when you see the united states you know and, and kind of what has happened here in the last maybe five six years what do you make of that as somebody? And, you know, do you see the danger of history repeating itself? Yeah, I think the, the, the one thing that I'm really proud of um, about South Africa, at least, is it feels like we've at least, um, you know, even in apartheid, right? Like many people, I can remember people back in the day, like adults that I was around would say uh, things like the only mistake they made with apartheid is they made a policy, Right but the rest of the world is just as racist and they never got the slack for it. And I think that's a, that's a totally BS kind of way of seeing it. Right. And that's just racist in, it, in its own right. But just in the same way that kind of our government in the past labeled this thing as apartheid, I think in the same way, we've literally put that into the spotlight and said, you know what, like people are inherently, you know, maybe not inherently by nature, but, we have biases, biases here that we need to start breaking down. And if you look at South Africa, we, you know, South Africa on a kind of governmental official level 
supports 11 official languages, right? Of which English is, I think, only the third biggest, right? Or third, third most prominent one. Um, and we've essentially said, like, we're at least going to try and figure out this melting pot of things, which has so much politics, so much legacy. It is really, really hard, right? I mean, one of the biggest challenges we have in our country, I think, um, amongst Black people is land reform, right? Like all those years ago, right or wrong, um, you know, kind of people were on the land and then settlers came in and they took the land away. And trying to figure out, like, how do you handle land reform? Like, how do you handle wealth redistribution? And how do you do all of those things in a country that is labeled as a developing country, right? As a, you know, a country that doesn't have an economy that is first world. Those things are really, really hard, but I'm truly at least proud of the fact that we're, we're trying, right? And, you know, I think foreigners often cite violence in our country as a way to say that we're not doing things right. But I honestly think that, you know, that the younger generations, um, I think are being set up for a very, very different future in this country. country. I, I'm at least very optimistic and, and, and very hopeful. There's a different kind of energy. And I think when I look at other countries, you, the US included, I think some of this is still so, um, you know, some of the racism or at least some of the bias, let's just, I, I'll call it bias because I don't want to necessarily judge and criticize because um, I'm not an expert and I'm definitely not a politician, but much of it yeah. still seems to be unacknowledged. And I think that's the worst part, right? Is like, you know, being disadvantaged is one thing, being disadvantaged and not being seen is, is, it has to be way worse. And I think that's, that's what it sounds like it happens. And that definitely still happens in South Africa as well, but I don't think it happens to, to the same extent. Yeah. Somebody said to me a couple uh, weeks ago, like uh, on an episode that talent and opportunity are not spread equally. And I, that's, that's a hard message for people to hear because, you know, it basically effectively says that, you know, you could be the most talented person in the world, but if you're not given an opportunity to express that, it's, you know, you just don't get the advantage that somebody who gets that opportunity does. Yeah. I mean, I, it's really like from just from my own, um, my my own experience. And if you, if I think about when, where my entrepreneurial journey kicked off was I was able to study debt-free, right? My, My parents had the means and I was very privileged that they could cover my study debt for four years at university. And I could, in the final year, I built the first product that eventually became, you know, with Eames and WooCommerce. I took a, a corporate job for only six weeks after that final year at university. And I was making enough money on the side with this with Eames thing compared to, or the same money there than I was from my corporate gig. So I quit. And the only reason I quit was the fact that I knew that I had a safety net. I knew that, mm-hmm. you know, my safety net was always going to be the education that my parents had kind of you know, paid for me. There was no study that there that I, like extra variable, extra risk that I had to take there. Um, and I could always kind of, you know, so I could follow, kind of move, kind of fall back on that education. And if I really needed to, I could move back in with my parents, right? That, you know, that still had my room. So to some extent, that's that kind of opportunity. When I hear you saying, you know, talent and opportunity is not equally distributed in my society. Like I, I experienced that, right? Um, and I don't necessarily feel, I don't feel guilty about it, but it does feel yeah. uncomfortable saying that. Um, because it's also, it's also not like 
I created that. Um, I was also just kind of a product of so many other things that, that happened way before my time. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I completely relate. I mean, I, I did, you know, move back in with my parents and I think that one thing I realized is that with Indian parents, you know, my cousin and I are saying, yeah, they yell at us. Yeah. They criticize us. You know, <laughs> it's not the sort of typical, you know, if, you know, if words of affirmation are your love language, Indian parents are definitely not, <laughs> you know, gonna, gonna, gonna cater to that, at least as, as I've learned. Um, but one of the things that became very apparent to me over the last couple of years was that it didn't seem to matter how bad things got. My cousin was saying, he said, the thing that you have with Indian parents is no matter how bad things get, no matter how old you are, that door is always open. And that is truly a safety net. And I, you know, I, I realize how often I've taken that for granted. Yeah, I, that, yes. I mean, that, that resonates with me, right? I mean, having, like having that safety net makes it so much harder or so much easier to, to take some risks in life at least. Yeah. Well, I think that that makes a perfect segue to talking about life profitability. But um, where I want to start with is by asking you, like, what impact did growing up in a country like South Africa have on your value system when it comes to entrepreneurship, when it comes to ambition, and to your definitions of success? Yeah. Um, I mean, I I think the first part, um, I mean, much of my early kind of exposure to entre- entrepreneurship was through my dad. I think, you know, as soon, you know, from the time that I can remember as a small toddler, when I actually have, I think, you know, kind of, you know, conscious memories of things. Um, my dad had his own businesses. And I think, um, you know, at that stage, it was likely a mix of, you know, because South Africa was a developing country, we didn't yet have all of the kind of international multi-corporates with businesses here, right? And, and the context here is my dad was a kind of accountant that got into computers and he um, basically had a old school, I would say kind of, you know, single store, computer store and specialized in creating, you know, corporate lands that also, and then also handled the kind of the accounting systems. And I think that was interesting, right? Because my dad essentially started his business and that business specifically almost in a kind of an open economy, right? Where there was still, it was unsophisticated. There was loads of opportunity there, but probably also because he had to, right? And I think that's, uh, and I, I'm wondering about this out loud, that that notion of he had to is probably something that had a massive influence on me, even though I didn't realize it. Because um, from the time, I, I kind of you know, played around the business-ish projects all the way through through high school and university. I almost flunked out of university because I did not spend enough time in class and I was spending too much time on these other things. But that's as a almost as a mental model of seeing my dad as an entrepreneur, like I think had a definitely had a, a kind of a, a big influence. Um that's and maybe that's a um I mean I'm I'm Afrikaans, which is my first language. Afrikaans is very similar to Dutch. And generally, Afrikaans people are more conservative um, in South Africa. And that's totally stereotypical. I, I understand that, but that's, I'm, I'm, I'm okay making the generalization. And that conservatism, um, you know, to this day has been something that I've had to balance with my ambition. Um, so I, as an example, if I give you like truly in how that plays out my values and who I am today, Srini, is I am super risk averse, um, even though... I've like from the outside, it must look like 
Eddie does all these things. Like he does not mind risk. I'm super risk averse. I absolutely, I, I, I really dislike you know, risks and my, I'm very pragmatic about seeing those risks and trying to see all the risks and then pairing them back and trying to figure, you know, figure out like what amount of risk do I really need to take? And then at that point I accept that this is, you know, this is, I can, I can handle that. Like this, you know, even in the worst case scenario, if this doesn't work out, like I can, I can cope with that. But I think, as I said, I'm very risk averse, which I think is very different to, to many other entrepreneurs. And that's definitely rooted in, you know, that part of my, my upbringing as a Afrikaans boy in South Africa. Mm. So what, what is it that, uh, led to this framework of life profitability? Like what made you want to write this book and why now and why you? Yeah. So uh, two, I think there's two paths, um, into that. The, the first is for me that my, my life kind of broke down about five, six years ago. Um, and when I say broke down is, um, I burned so many bridges, mind was on fire, um, sh- almost shattered so many kind of relationships, including my own marriage. And if it wasn't for the help of a therapist that came into my life at just the right time, and it helped me very, very quickly turn things around, um, my life would have been kind of completely different, you know, five years later today. So I think that's the, that was the first part. And a big part of that realization was that I'd been so ambitious and laser focused on this path of building a business, becoming a successful entrepreneur, you're building wealth, all those things that I wasn't conscious of all, or even aware of all these, all the collateral damage that I'd created alongside kind of that journey. Um, you know, all the life costs that I'd accrued for myself and for other people. So that's kind of, and I said, like my life was on the verge of falling apart. So I stumbled into that. Um, and then as I started making some changes there, the thing that I think the other part of this was um, my team with Converjo, my, which was my second successful software company that I exited, we had kind of stumbled onto this idea that we wanted to run the team and build a business that was, the initial words we used was life and family first. And that's really when I started kind of experimenting with a different way of seeing, you know, seeing business and how that related back to my life. Because I, at that stage, going through this whole metamorphosis in my personal life, in my home life, in my marriage, in my friendships, I needed a different way of building a business. And conversion, my team ultimately became that, um, you know, that, like literally that kind of R&D lab for for certain things. And it really is kind of those experiences that then, kind of going from that idea of how to build a business that's life and family first to ultimately say, you know, how to to build a business that is life profitable. And when I say build a business that's life profitable, what I mean is not just build a business that is profitable in the narrow sense of the word, i.e. financially profitable, but build a business that truly profits one's whole life, like both my life as the, you know, as the founder and entrepreneur, but also hopefully to some extent, at least, you know, kind of every single life that it touches. So the team members inside, the families around those businesses for for those team members, as well as my own family, and eventually kind of how that ripples outwards to the communities and societies that any of us interact in. Wow. Nice. Yeah. 
What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So... One thing that you say in the book is that we've been conditioned to believe that being willing to sacrifice everything is the right thing to do in the entrepreneurial way. That's a flawed approach. Being an entrepreneur shouldn't overshadow everything. Being an entrepreneur is just one expression of life and creating a life profitable business can generate not only financial wealth, but a rich life. And I think that that really struck me in particular because you know we've had people like Justine Musk, who's Elon's ex-wife here. And one of the things that she said you know, at for achieving at that, that level is she said that that kind of achievement often does come at the cost of 
everything in your life. And, and I think that, you know, we glorify um, people like this in our culture, to your point. Uh, but then when, why is that? And then more importantly, how do you break the pattern? Because I, I don't think that that is feasible for everyone, despite the fact that it's glorified. Yeah. I, so I think the answering the why question first, I think, I think that goes down to, to ego. That's at least how I understand it. And I, I don't even say that as a way to say ego is bad, right? I think if, if we were to take ego out of the human psyche and out of our society completely, we would not have entrepreneurs. We would not have innovators. We would not have artists, right? Um, we would not have authors. Like nobody does anything where zero ego is intact. And I, the, the biggest um, epiphany that I had was, you know, on my kind of mindfulness journey and exploring Buddhism, I, I, I spoke with a friend and he reminded me, he said, you know what, Adi, just remember that the pursuit of no ego is also just ego, right? Because it's just, it's just going to a different end of the spectrum. So I think that's the why in terms of entrepreneurship, why these things ultimately kind of dictate such large parts of our life. Because it, 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 feel, it feels that ego that we have, right? I think it's, it's a great feeling, like creating something, getting positive feedback from people out there, and much better getting paid for it, right? That is an absolutely amazing feeling. And it, it's not just kind of a, a, you know, a fleeting feeling. Like if it is truly significant, it feeds that ego, right? It's something very intrinsic to us. So I think that is why that happens. The second part about this not being feasible for for everyone, you know, for everyone at least, is I think that's true as well. I would, in fact, I probably have no doubts that, um, you know, Elon Musk probably can't create what he's created without making immense kind of sacrifices elsewhere in his life, and that is perfectly fine as like as well. And just take a step back, and then I'll kind of you know, continue there. Is I think firstly you know, everyone's version of life profitability is totally different and it's down to every unique individual. Like how you define that, the things you put in your life portfolio, that's up to you. So maybe Elon Musk is living a life that is life profitable. What I mostly wanted to to kind of do with the book in that sense and where I try and break down this way we see entrepreneurs and how we celebrate entrepreneurs in our society today is just by saying that what Elon Musk is doing should not be the default way that most businesses get built and the way most entrepreneurs conduct themselves, because that likely is not their version of life profitability. And unfortunately, and feeling in the other part of beyond the ego, which is how we induce the system ourselves as individuals, the other part that I don't think is helpful here is that the mainstream media like they love those mm-hmm. stories, right? Yeah. Um, and they they continuously like there's an echo chamber. Um, and a compounding echo chamber of sorts in mainstream media as well, both in terms of entrepreneurship and in terms of other things. But unfortunately, you know, and I say unfortunately because I don't agree with this, we celebrate the success of the likes of, you know, someone like Elon Musk, right? Or someone like Steve Jobs, who by all accounts sounds like a visionary, but an absolute dick to be around, right? Like that's (laughs) like, and again, I've not met him. Like that's just accounts, right? But we celebrate those individuals when we should probably be saying, fair enough, you're a visionary or you work really, really hard or all these things, but hey, you totally neglect your family and we should at least point that out. We don't even have to judge. Yeah. We at least have to acknowledge that as well. But we cherry pick the best parts of these idols that we have and we then use that kind of perfectly pruned, cherry picked version of entrepreneurship to say, here's 
kind of here's what all of you, you know, other people that want to be entrepreneurs need to strive for. And I don't agree with that. Yeah, I think that this is probably why I liked the book so much. You know, I I, I ended up writing this article just a, a few days ago uh, titled Why Outliers Are Bad Models, Role Models for Most of Us. And to, to your point, they primarily become our role models because that's who, you know, we put in on the covers of magazines. That's who writes books and gives TED Talks. And I said, what you don't hear about are the people who busted their asses for years and didn't amount to anything. Um, and, you know, it's funny. So, so one of the sort of terms that sort of emerged over the last few years is influencer, which I think is a totally nonsense term. And I remember somebody was telling me here, you know, don't worship false gods. He had, you know, worked with people like Ralph Lauren. And, you know, I, I, I like I remember somebody thinking, saying, you know, oh, you're an influencer. I was like, no, you know, who's an influencer? Mother Teresa, the mom who works three jobs to put food on the table is an influencer. They influence real outcomes. The person who has a million followers on Instagram doesn't influence shit as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. yeah. But unfortunately, you know, in that comparison, Mother Teresa is not as sexy, right? And kind of mainstream yeah. media can't write a sensationalist, um, you know, opinion piece or whatever editorial about Mother Teresa as they could about the influencer with, you know, a million plus followers. Yeah. So another thing you talk about is this definition of success. And this was one that I just really loved because, you know, I'm writing a, a new book uh, that's, you know, with the subtitle of, you know, living a life on your own or, you know, six, creating success on your own terms. And you said you can decide for yourself what success looks like and aim for more than business, just business riches, but life riches as well. You can also learn more to fully count business costs by expanding your expenses to include the life riches your business has, has embezzled from you. And the funny thing is we let so many other people define success for us from a very early age. I mean, you know, I grew up in an Indian family. We were taught that success is, you know, good grades, getting into a good school and, you know, making sure that not just a good school, the most prestigious school that you can get into, the most prestigious job that you can land. And basically, you know, you're in this just arms race for, you know, what I call impressive biodata. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, so I wonder... Yeah. How? Perfect. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Um. Uh, I, I guess the the thing that made me wonder is, is you know, it, it's so easy to let other people define success for you for you because that's literally every everything in the world around you, every input is giving you a definition of success. Yeah, and it's like if if you do that, by the way, I think it's to some extent it feels safe as well, right? You don't have to stick your neck out there in terms of defining success and then pursuing it, you only have to pursue it, right? So yeah. it's it's safer. I I would probably take a step back to you. Know, I think what um, the, the way and part of the reason I don't agree with these societally kind of mandated definitions of you know, success is purely the fact that we, all of us need to remember that everything that we have in our society at this stage, and let's stick within danger and say within your know, kind of business or professional success, right? Our economies, the capitalist you know, system, um, and the way we measure success in those things is all human-made. And I think we all agree that human beings are imperfect, right? We're not perfect. And we're essentially kind of ascribing our happiness and the way we measure success in our life to something that a, a bunch of humans has created. And I think that's just, that's just such a limiting way of seeing life, right? Um, I think it ignores so many other things, even though, you know, capitalism, for example, is, you know, the predominant model in which we run our societies today. That doesn't mean it's the way for us to, to start defining our success, because it ultimately, like, the way we define our success 
influences the way we feel on a daily basis, the way we experience this journey whilst we're kind of mortal beings on this earth. And I just think there's more, right? I don't have the answer necessarily, right? In terms of yeah. what that kind of complete, perfect, you know, different definition of success looks like. I just know kind of, and I believe that the way we're doing it today is subpar. And I think, I think we can do better. I think there's alternatives here. Yeah. Well, well, let's, let's talk specifically about measurement because you know, you and I both run businesses. I happen to have investors and, you know, they are going to measure certain things, you know, they're going to measure revenue. And, and one of the things you say is that the measurement world is indifferent to things such as inspiration, deviation, or improvisational growth that doesn't care about lessons learned that pay later dividends, unearthed opportunities that could lead to something even better later. And it doesn't care about life profits. The measurement world is not a place for the organic riotous life finding and fruiting According to circumstances and clever optimism, the place of assertive success, measurement is a reductionist world. Measurement is a reductionist world approach that pronounces death life on being the verge of one of those. And I, you know, I, I think this really struck me because one of the things that I, you know, beat like a dead horse with the, you know, private membership community we have for helping people you know, work on their creative projects is I always say mastery over metrics. Um, yet I'm saying this as a person who has to create a report for an investor once a quarter. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and, you know, it, there is truth to the fact that there's an importance to measurement. Uh, Fred Wilson has this bl blog post on his blog titled track and measure. But I think that there's a sort of danger where metrics become almost an obsession of sorts. I mean, we see it in virtually every area of life now, not just sort of business success, but biohacking. I mean, like you are a wearable, you start to feel like a horrible human being because your sleep score isn't high enough. Yeah. So and, I, yeah. So I, I, I just want to turn it over to you to kind of, uh, you know, talk about, you know, how do you get out of this sort of measurement trap? Yeah. I think just acknowledging what you just said there, right. Which is, you know, th those things that are easy to be measured and the things that are easy to be me measured in our life, whether it's in business or health, as you just mentioned, are generally, you know, you're able to you know, quantify them, right? And I think what happens is very subconsciously, because something is easier to measure, it's easier to prove and show progress, whether it's for ourselves, i.e. Right, internal validation, or some form of external validation, which means we constantly gravitate to those things. I think, you know, in 2021 you know, and beyond, like we live in a society where everything is super connected. We're used to instant gratification and that dopamine, dopamine hit from, you know, getting a like on you know, one of our social profiles, which means if we can share a metric and that gets positive feedback, right, that dopamine like all over. So I think just acknowledging that and then remembering that there are so many other worthwhile, meaningful, purposeful things that we can do in our lives that doesn't have a quantifiable metric to it. That doesn't mean that it's less important. And again, to that extent, I, I think it's just about rejigging how, the, the blend of those things, like the things that we measure versus the things that we can't measure and making sure that we add sufficient things into our life for both of those things. And I think as a North Star, at least for every individual, in terms of figuring out what that blend needs to look like between those two things, it's probably just, you know, go back to like, you know, who am I as 80? Like, what, am, what, you know, what are my highest values? And then making sure that where I am making those investments, where I am trying to measure progress, I could relate to those highest values. That's, for me, at least, that's the best North Star that I have. And as I said, like, part of me acknowledges that, you know, in that, like, that blend of things, there's things that I can track, right? Um, and there's things that I can't. 
And like, one thing I'll throw out there, my my coach, friend and coach, Dan Martel, um, he he tells me the story where he and his wife, Renee, they have a weekly family meeting. And in that meeting, one of the things they will do is they'll rate each other as kind of as a spouse and as a your parent. And it's just a kind of one out of 10 rating. And it's obviously totally subjective. There's just two people there. But the idea literally there is like, hey, Renee, like, have I been a good husband last week? Like, no, Dan, you're getting a three today. You've been shitty, right? And then there's actually an option like for Dan to say, can I get feedback on that? The reason I tell that story is I think if we're like, that's a creative solution to trying to quantify at least partly, am I making progress on something that's important to me? Like, am I making progress Mm -hmm. in my marriage or towards in a relationship with someone that is important to me? Can I get some feedback on that? Can I at least track, like get that feedback to go in and track any progress, any changes? So again, just because it's not easily quantifiable doesn't mean there isn't a creative way to potentially measure progress in some way that at least gives you some sense of like, am I just kind of you know, tricking my own mind and like this is just a bullshit pursuit here? Or am I making kind of you know, impacting something that is actually significant and important to me. Yeah, it, it's funny. I mean, this is one of the primary reasons I never will choose a podcast guest based on what I think they will do for our numbers. Um, because to me, that that's not prioritizing the thing that matters, which is the value that they're going to provide to our listeners. Yeah, and I think the irony and all of that, I, like, um, and I was t- I'm trying to think, um, like probably the most mainstream example that I have here is if you look at Patagonia, right, as a company, like multi-billion dollar company, and I think they've always prioritized, or at least 99% when, you know, percent of the time prioritized things that are more important to them compared to money, right? And they've built a significant business. And I think that, you know, when you do the right thing, maybe not always, and maybe not, you know, definitely not in the short term or immediately, but the universe tends to kind of work in a way that it rewards making the right decisions, right? So to your point, like getting the right guests on here, having the most meaningful conversations, that ultimately serves the business goals as well. Yeah. Well, speaking of of money, I think that this is something that really struck me. Uh, You said, you know, in our Western world, we glorify the pursuit of wealth and its endless accumulation. We glorify money so much that we measure our self-worth by our net worth too often and measure ourselves against others by what they own. This puts us in an escalating arms race for material goods as we try to keep up with the Joneses. And I I guess the, the thing that you know, I'm guessing somebody might be thinking right as they hear me read this passage from your book is, yeah, that's easy for AD to say he's sold two multi-million dollar businesses. And somehow it's always the people like him who have things like this to say to people like us who don't have that money. So, you know, with that in mind, what do you say to those people? Yeah, that's probably the the, the most fair, you know, but a feedback that I would expect many people to give me on the book? And I think it's a totally fair mm-hmm. question. And I think the, the only thing that I can, I, I'll add this as well, Srini, before I get into this and like having published books, like you understand this as well, I think partly perhaps is, I think we all know that many authors that ultimately publish a book, even if they share anecdotes and stories and experiences from the past, they ultimately write the book and they try and kind of retrofit 
the what happened to, <laughs> to, to to the narrative that they're trying to picture, right? Absolutely. And I like. I don't think there's anything that think that's wrong, right? I think neatly packaging a bunch of ideas and experiences in a way that is possibly valuable to people is perfectly fine. So I don't have a problem with that. But I I like. I always wanted to. I, I want to acknowledge that, and I don't think me writing life profitability is significantly different to that. What I will say is the following is I unfortunately also only learned that making money, fueling this ambitious dragon that I had on my shoulder, all of those things didn't make me happy after like, firstly, I had already had success. Right. And secondly, after I'd almost kind of you know, burned my whole life down and lost everything that was meaningful to me. So the point being, at least, you know, and, you know, I think listeners and you know, readers of the book, you know, they, they can trust, they can trust that I'm being honest and authentic when I say those things or they, you know, or they don't. Um, and I can't, unfortunately, I can't do much more than just share very openly that part of the story, um, yeah. which is, I, I just learned this later in life where I, where I actually hope that I, I would have learned some of these things, you know, sooner. Well, I, I mean, I, I appreciate your candor about, you know, the real acknowledging the, the reality of this, which often, you know, people don't do that and they're not willing to say that, you know, we don't talk about the fact that sometimes we got lucky as a byproduct of circumstance, upbringing, whatever it is. Um, but I think that that makes a perfect segue to talking about another thing you brought up in the book, which is um, this whole scarcity mindset. And you say, despite what we've been taught, scarcity is not a permanent and omnipresent force dictating the rules of our world. It's not an objective fact like gravity or mortality or time or energy. Scarcity is circumstantial. Change the circumstance and scarcity becomes moot. Solve the circumstance, solve scarcity. And you know, I, I think that there's a large scarcity mindset for so many people that you know there's just not enough to go around. Um, you know, I will never be as big as so-and-so, whatever it is. Um, and I, I think that, you know, one thing I really appreciated was you talked about this idea of enough, which I do want to get into, but um, how do you, how do you get people from scarcity to abundance, you know, without bullshitting themselves through new age nonsense, like affirmations that aren't true? <laughs> um, I think, I mean, well, I tell them the story firstly, that, um, you know, my first business was in the WordPress ecosystem and, WordPress is an open source platform, which meant that every single product that we built, you know, you could, anyone could download it. They could give it away for free. They could resell it. They could rebrand it. They could make it their own, like whatever the case was. And that was my, and again, like I did not, I don't think I had the vocabulary back then to even like know or understand the term zero sum game. But I think that was my first experience of at least seeing that, you know, kind of, in that space, like, there could be many people that could thrive, even if some of them, you know, technically, not not, not technically, literally what it felt like was stealing our stuff and reselling it, they were allowed to legally do so, right? That's that's the nature of open source. So I I always start with that story because that's part of what has always kind of shaped my, my opinion. Um, and then years later, the thing that actually poured fuel on my kind of, um, you know, my flames in this regard is, reading uh, Peter Diamandis' book, Abundance. Um, mm. And Peter is way more eloquent than I can ever be about kind of where <laughs> you abundance... You and me both. Yeah, so like he he just has all these kind of great examples of where abundance shows up in kind of in our society, but also just in nature. 
And I think like that's the thing that was the tipping point for me is understanding that kind of abundance is that there is so much abundance in many places, but we need to change our kind of definition of what kind of abundance we're seeking, right? Because some things are finite, ultimately. Like if you're you're trying to find abundance of time, for example, you're not going to find, you know, that. If we're trying to find, you know, an abundance of you know oxygen on this earth whilst we're, you know, continuously burning fossil fuels, we're probably not going to find those things either. So it's not, I don't think it's simple, but there's enough abundance there. We just need to reorientate ourselves. Um, so as I said, like my... Like, proposal there for anyone that is keen to you know to to or has the open mind to want to change their perspective you know um as i said understand open source software and then what it takes to kind of to build a business a commercial business and an open source and then read peter diamandis book abundance hmm. well let's talk specifically about growth because i think that's just a perfect segue from this idea of abundance you say if you buy into toxic entrepreneurial archetypal mindsets, naturally your business practices will follow them. In the case of endless growth, it creates a few serious problems. First, we know that this is never enough. This way of thinking has dire consequences for us entrepreneurs. It sucks us in, convinces us to never disengage and to feed our lives and our shared lives with loved ones uh, to the dragon. And I, I love that because it's something that I've been thinking a lot about and, and writing about is this idea of how much is enough. And I, I remember uh, my friend Paul Jarvis was here as a guest and he said that, you know, in any field other than business, infinite growth is cancer. Yeah. Uh, and yet, you know, what is the the sort of mantra of Silicon Valley is we're looking for unicorns. We want, you know, as venture capitalists to pr invest in something you know, that's going to retire the entire value of the fund. Uh, so how do you resolve those two paradoxes if you're particularly a person building a business with investors or one that you're looking to sell, which I know you've done? Yeah. And um, I, I mean, as a disclaimer, Paul is a, a very good friend of mine. Um, and that exact quote, right, is is something that you know, influences influenced me a lot about thinking about growth as well. Um, I think the simple, my simple take on this, Srini, is that you know, we often propose when, when we have these lofty goals um, in terms of I want to sell my business for a billion dollars or whatever the case is. I think what we often don't do is we don't think through like what, why firstly, but then what if, like what if that actually happens? Like what happens the next day? And I think, you know, being able to answer that question about like if I achieve X goal, if I make, you know, Y amount of money, like what do I do with that money? That probably reshapes that that goal, right? You probably realize that, hey, I don't have to sell my business for that sum of money to actually live the life that I want. And that probably is a much better way to define what is good enough for you today, given your resources, given your um, competing, you know, kind of priorities or things in your life, and then orientating towards that versus just saying, hey, those things can only be true if I sell my business for, you know, why amount of money? Yeah. Well, I, I remember Yannick Silver was here um, and, you know, it was this episode about finding the essence of your goals. And he had a client who had said that he wanted to be a billionaire. And so Yannick kind of had him break it down. I was like, all right, what do you what are you going to what do you need the billion dollars for? And he listed all these different things. And he finally came to the conclusion. He's like, you didn't need anywhere near a billion dollars for all <laughs> yeah. that stuff. And I mean, even for me, because it's that sort of goal that you co-opt from some book that you read or that you hear about on some podcast. And I always joked, like, the only reason I'd need a billion dollars is because I want to buy an NBA team. And I don't even <laughs> watch professional sports. I just play sports video games. 
but other than that, I can't think of anything that I could use. I, I absolutely need a billion dollars for. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the that's the perfect example. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, this has been super eye-opening. You know, I know I love the fact that we've taken uh, a sort of philosophical approach to something that is also incredibly tactical. And I know that you get quite a bit into the tactical components um, in the book. Um, so I want to give you a chance to kind of pitch people the book and talk specifically about the tactics, and then um, we'll wrap things up with my final question. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess tactically, uh, Srini, what I, what I would share is the book really is designed to think through concentric circles um, and three very particular concentric circles, which starts firstly with you as the individual in your life. And that part of it really is the part where you figure out like what are those highest values? What are those things that needs to be in your life portfolio where work and this professional ambition is just one of those components? Like what are those other things that needs to go in there? So and the reason it starts with you as an individual is regardless of the next steps in your journey, there's only going to be one common denom- denominator and that's going to be you. So I really like, I, I, I encourage you know, people to go back to that kind of, you know, that space within themselves, um, you know, be calm, be uncomfortable perhaps in that space, but then ask those questions of yourself. So it really starts there and then it starts rippling outwards to, you know, if you run a team, it goes to your team. If you're, you're married, you have family goes to your family, it goes to your friends, it goes to kind of the society and around that. And, and really figuring out, I think, where, like which things you need to do to ensure a smooth energy transition. Like if you think about, you know, throwing a pebble into the lake, um, you essentially don't want, as there's kind of ripples, you know, ripple outward, like you don't want any obstruction there. And that's the way I think about, like if you're going to expend energy in any direction, any action you take in your business or life, like find ways to remove the friction because that, you know, doing that, it will allow those kind of the energy to ripple out further and have a bigger impact. And then the final ripple there is after you've done kind of those things is then, is actually then, you know, we spoke about this earlier, right? In the Patagonia example, or in the example of you know, the podcast here is by choosing the right guest, by doing the right things. Um, the last ripple there is then just the business. It's almost like the business then manifests itself in some way. It just becomes this, you know, both a container, but also just a blank canvas for having done the other things um, in a way that is is good or at least life profitable. Mm. Amazing. Um, well, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think I I'm hugely passionate um, about this idea of individual magic individual unique magic. And I think that magic lives in all of us. And I think when we show up as as that unique individual and we figure out how to manifest that uniqueness and that magic in our daily lives, that is that is unmistakably you, that's unmistakably AD, that's unmistakably all of us. Hmm. Amazing. Wow. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights uh, with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, the book, and everything else that you're up to? Yeah, thanks, Rini. I mean, the best uh, the best place to to find me is on my personal website, adii.me. I'm also adii on Twitter, where I'm pretty active. Um, and then the book is on Amazon, both digital and paperback format, as well as most other major retailers that you would expect it worldwide. Awesome. And for everybody listening, 
we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you're listening, are there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.